Our next retreat is finally here. It's called Adventures in Energetics, and it's happening November 8th to the 14th, 2024 in Boquete, Panama. This seven-day, six-night retreat in the beautiful cloud forest of Panama is going to be a unique experience. This program is a not-for-beginners retreat. And what I mean by that is you will actually have to fill out an application before you will be accepted to be able to register for the program because we are going to be doing more advanced level energetics and I need to make sure that everybody who comes is actually ready for the work. We will be doing a Kundalini awakening. We will be doing group visioning process called a spiritual canoe. We will be doing daily presence practices and working on expanding our energy. We will be doing daily rituals. This process will be related to specifically the people who are there because in addition to filling out the questionnaire about what your experience is, you're also gonna ask for what it is that you'd like to learn. So part of the curriculum for this is set and part of it will be designed around the desires of the participants. I only have 20 beds available for this retreat, so it will fill up quickly. So this is the time to register. Do not wait. To find out more, go to kellysparta.com forward slash retreat. I look forward to seeing you there. Another blood red sunset and yet another moon face and still another hundred miles to my next resting place. Driving down the road, eyes on the horizon, within my car I'm all Feeling good and feeling strong Knowing that this path I'm on brings me to myself I'm driving Hey y'all, I'm Jules. Welcome back to another episode of Spirit Sherpa, the show that helps and encourages you on your journey to unlock your magic mojo. With me as always is the spirit doctor, Kelly Sparta. Hey Kelly, how's it going? Hey, Jules, I think you got my rain. <laughs> I did, and I appreciate it. The garden is loving it right now. <laughs> we we had uh, a little on the dry side. Yeah, we, we've had 260 inches of rain here in Boquete, Panama this year. Wow. Uh, and, wow. and the year's not even over yet. <laughs> and so we're coming into the dry season, and I haven't seen rain in a few days, you know, which is unusual here. So uh, I was going, well, where'd it go? And clearly it went to visit you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy because they're even, they have already announced most of the schools in Louisiana are shut down tomorrow ahead of this severe weather coming in. Yeah, yeah. So we're used to that during hurricane season, but now it's past hurricane season pretty much. And, you know, it should be okay now, but, you know, <laughs> you know, just random storm coming through. What the heck? Keep, keep on your toes. Little details. Yeah, small, small detail. So, yeah, but so. We're, we, we've got some cool stuff going on today. So I'm going to sort of cut our yes, chat short because we have not one but two guests today. And one of them is one of my favorite people. Uh, and that's Colm Holland. And he wrote The Secret Behind the Alchemist. And you, we've, we've had him on the show a couple of times in the last few years. And, uh, you know, as always, we, we end up going long anytime he's on the show because he's just too interesting and we have too much fun. And I haven't talked to him in freaking forever because I moved. So I'm like, brother, where have you been? And so, yeah, Colm's back. He is in an actual sorcerer and alchemist. And so he's got this amazing book that he is uh, touting. That's not even his, it's, it's an, a, somebody else's book. And, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting, and I'm going to let him tell you about it. Welcome, Colm. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Jules. Thanks for having me back. It has been way too long. Yes. But then so tell us all about... Move. Well, first off, introduce the, the person you brought with you, because I want to make sure we, we get him in so he can talk too. <laughs> yes, I've, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to also introduce Dean Wilkinson, um, who's come come in um, on this book with me. Um, Dean heads up a, a business called um, Epoch Work, which I'll let him explain. But um, Dean is a, a particularly um, soul brother of mine, and you'll, you'll understand as we begin to talk about the book because um, what I discovered was that um, there's a massive cultural divide called the Atlantic between... <laughs> 
the, the state of religion in, in Britain and the state of religion in certain parts of the USA. And the reason I wanted this book to, to be republished, and I'll explain uh, why it's being republished, is because I felt it was a very, very timely message for many people within the USA right now where politics and religion and conspiracy theories and dogma and fundamentalism all kind of in this big pot together right now and yeah yeah um mm-hmm. it's a bit scary so we thought that we would like to come in and inform that to some degree and particularly help inform those people who feel disenfranchised from the whole thing anything to do with literalism of the bible and particularly the person of jesus in other words what what this book says is is it possible to have a faith in the christ who is jesus um, without actually believing in the literal truth of the New Testament. Is that possible? Can I still call myself a Christian? Can I have a relationship with the Christ? Um, can I still find him to be a transformative presence in my life and so on? And that, that's, this is what this book speaks to um, directly. So I'm really, really thrilled to welcome Dean because Dean's lived this stuff firsthand and, and has his own story to tell. Um, on the school. Welcome, Dean. Thank you. So, yeah. So I I have to say that the way that Colm just described this, uh, and can I still have a relationship with Christ if, uh, you know, it's not the literal Christ as described in the book. I'm I'm sitting here going, well, of course you can. We talk about this all the time on the mythological series because we're we're having a conversation about the morphic field that is created out of the belief structure that is what is the god or goddess or or myth that we're talking about, and that the belief itself creates the entity, and therefore it exists, right? And so we talk about this a lot in the in the um the series here, and so uh, I'm. I, I'm sure I've just like used the terminology that you probably wouldn't have used, but that that would be how we would approach it here. Tell us how you would approach it. Well, like that terminology in, let's say, Christianity, it wouldn't be allowed, right? It wouldn't. It, oh, you would be dismissed right away because you know it has to be so factual and it has to be so provable, and the only provable place is in the Bible. So if it's not there, it's not anywhere. <clears throat> but if you know the Bible and the original languages, you could find probably find that there, right? So it's it's the idea that, hey, when you are disenfranchised by the church, by religion, and you're out there without without a friend. It's 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 desert because no one really knows how to engage with you. And especially if you came out of that world, you're almost pariah and, and, and they'll avoid you in the, in the, in the store type of thing, but they don't know why. And it's because to go after the, their faith in a way that has them question what's going on inside of them and what's going on in the world. It upsets the apple cart as right. I'm sure everyone here has been upset with, you know, faith struggles or belief struggles. What am I going to believe and what makes sense to me? And to go into another idea whose time has come that Jesus, it could have not happened. He could have not really died on the cross, but the Christ figure, which Paul talked about all the time, that was in existence when Adam and Eve were there, right? So it's the, the spirit of Christ that is the transformative power of even the story of Jesus. Okay, so to be clear, you're 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 separating the man Jesus from the energy of the Christ and you're referencing them separately because from your perspective, presumably through the the research done in this book, that they are actually separate. Yes. Okay, that the Christ, that that Jesus may have embodied the Christ from time to time, but that he was not the man was not the Christ energy. That the Christ energy was its own thing. Is that accurate? Uh, exactly. we, 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 go further. 
right? It's okay. it is well put. He exuded the Christ energy, or the stories have him doing that. But the Christ itself, you know, understand. Like I come from a position where Jesus still is my hero. It, it, that idea, that's the one I pursued, whether I was in church or even now today, you know, the, like 10, 12 years after, was the idea of that. And while in the church, I didn't really meet Christ. Right. I didn't experience the power of that. It was after. I think a lot of people have had that experience. Yeah. Excuse me? I think a lot of have people you, have had that experience where they go looking for for that Christ experience in the church, and the church does not deliver, right? I mean, I know I went to church after church after church throughout my entire childhood and and very rarely found the connection to the Christ, and it was not through the, the service itself so much as through my, whatever I was doing in in the process right so um so i think that that's a pretty common experience in the church uh dynamic so you know let, i want to back us up for a second because we talked about a lot of stuff before we got on here and i feel like we're kind of assuming that other people heard that conversation and they didn't <laughs> so uh let's start with uh who wrote the book what perspective did he write it from and why are you guys talking about it instead of him Let's start with that. Colm, you want to take that? Okay, yeah, yeah. So the book is called The True Origins of Jesus, The Myth Behind the Man. It wasn't called that originally. So it was, it was, the book was written by a guy called Jeff Roberts. And sadly, Jeff Roberts has passed. Um, he wrote this book uh, on his own in complete isolation at a time when there were very, very few people to talk about the fact that, um, He'd been to church, he'd been through Sunday school, he'd been through school, he'd been taught the whole Bible story, and yet he struggled to find any, if any whatsoever, historical evidence to say that there ever was a real person called Jesus. And for him, um, his presumption was that actually there probably never was an actual person, Jesus, born in a manger who died on a cross and was resurrected as per what he was taught. Um, In fact, the first on the first very first page, the opening page of the book, he quotes a guy called um, Earl Doherty, um, who wrote a book called The Jesus Puzzle, and, and he quotes this. He said, before the Gospels were adopted as history, there is no record anywhere Nothing exists to say that Jesus ever existed, either in Jerusalem or in Palestine or anywhere on earth at all. And the only place where that is claimed is within the Gospels of the New Testament. And then as you begin, as Jeff Roberts um, began to study the New Testament in the original language in Greek and, and the multiple of theologians who are explaining um, what this is what's going on here what he discovered was that the original writers of the early christian story were probably people who we know as gnostics and the gnostics didn't ever claim or ever believe in a in a physical jesus they said the power of jesus the power of the christ lives in the myth it lives in the story, not in the fact and history. In fact, in those days, the, the whole concept of fact and science and history, you know, that was a bit of a foreign thought for, for our ancestors during that time. For them, um, something was true if we believed it was true. In other words, if, and we, we wanted to believe it was true, so we created story around it going way back, way back to the earliest Egyptians, even predate that. Um, so all our yearning for there to be a God and to make sense of the fact that the sun rose in the morning and it just seemed to disappear off the edge of the earth at the end of the day, and then guess what? It, you know, Miraculously, it came back up again in the same place. But so, you know, the Egyptians had their God, Ra, who went you know, into the underworld and do it. So that story of God Ra and the, the sun and the dying of the sun and the rising, that's where rebirth came from, the whole notion of transformation and rebirth. And those the, those of you that have studied Egyptian mythology, which is fascinating, you know, know that this is where many of these stories originated and this is where it came from. So what Jeff did was he said, is that it? 
Or are there other stories around the world and there are other influences where um, there are similarities between the story of Jesus in the Bible? Uh, uh, They got this story, and of course he discovered hundreds um, all over the world. And so he's documented those. He's quoting major scholars in the book, um, and he's saving anybody who wants to get a really good background on the multiple original myths that bore within them the essence of this Jesus character who was born of a virgin, maybe, um, who fled into Egypt, maybe, and so on. All of that is repeated and repeated through multiple myths over time. And he documents all of this, including the mystery religions, including the Essenes, including the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And he summarizes it by saying, that in his, from what he can study, what he's studied and what he's discovered as a layman, because he wasn't a theologian, Jeff was a, was a newspaper reporter. So he approached the whole subject of Jesus in the Bible as an investigative journalist. In other words, where are your facts? You know, where are you getting this from? You know, where's this story originating? Who started this story? How many different stories are there? How many versions of this story are there? Um, how, why is it that even the stories that are in the Bible all contradict each other historically? That some have got him born of a virgin, some don't even mention his birth. Some of them, you know, have got him walking on water. Some of them have him never walking on water. You know, so hey, guys, you know, um, let's let's get down to the bare bones. And he he came away by saying that it's obvious that to to say to be dictated to by the church over the centuries that you have to believe in a Jesus that looks like this that existed like this and to become a, to even identify as a christian or as a believer in christ you have to believe it in this way using this dogma is complete nonsense because the even the original writers of these stories didn't believe that and didn't insist on that. So this is something that has evolved over time. Um, and the power, according to, you know, this is what Jeff felt, the power of Jesus and, and of Christ lies in the myth, not in the fact. And that so many, you know, he, was, he didn't say, you know, don't, don't go to church, don't be a Christian. He said he wasn't knocking that at all. He said, but go deeper, ask the questions. Is it is the story of Jesus a transforming influence in your life? Is it going to help you find wholeness? Is it going to help you find real purpose? Or is it just going to encourage you to believe blindly in, in something which, if you really sit down hard and question it, you're probably going to doubt through and through? The interesting thing, those there's nothing to doubt if you believe in a myth. Right. Well, and, and on top of it, that... Um or is it being used as a way to control you, right? Um, which a lot of the religion uh, that's, you know, especially the hardline religion is often used as a way to control their constituents, their their parishioners, right? It's like, we're going to control your behavior. We're going to control how you do. We're going to control what you believe because that's that's how you stay in power. And the you know, power was a very big thing in, in the churches of old and still is today. I mean, if you don't believe that, look at all the churches getting involved in politics today, right? Um, you know, the, in both directions, to be fair. But, um, the, the thing is, is that the key to any belief structure is your connection to the belief. Mm-hmm. And your ability to transform through that belief, right? And that's yeah. what I think you're talking about with this, right? Yeah, I'm going to let I'm going to let Gene jump in here because uh, <laughs> he he, uh, he he was actually one of those church leaders, so I'm going to I'm going to let him. That explains the look on his face when so, I said power. <laughs> well, the, the, and it's that right. I don't think that they anyone that's in church is looking for power. I know that the story and the doctrine and the dogma causes uh, a state of where you are exalted and you have that power. So it's it's you know what could it have started with wanting power? I think I think it did. I think that you know, there's say, some evidence if we look at the to look at the inquisition I, baby we're talking power about mongering there. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was about control and power, you know, of, of Roman, you know, by the Roman Empire, right? So it was it was it was that to control 
this any anything that separates the, you from their control. So, but in the churches today, and I had a lot of pastor friends. No one did it in power. They did it out of a heart that was wanting to serve people. But what they are, you know, what they've been experiencing for the last, let's just call it decade, but a little bit longer than that, is this idea of a revolving door. People come in and then they out after they, there's no delivery of transformation or very little of it. And so th- they're confused about what's happening and they're too, let's just call it invested in the story. They're invested in this being Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we would have eternal life. Right. And there's because so much the English language to, to explain this and from a certain context. And I, I don't think there's any, anything there for most churches and most pastors and most church leaders, but there is a refusal to, to question you know, the, the idea of apologetics, have you, you guys heard that? They taught that in most of the churches, right? So here, when people tell you that the stories don't align and there's this difference and that difference, and here's the proof that Jesus was alive, it's actually the evidence of anything about him, except for one letter written by somebody. They said, hey, the, you know, this, this, these Christians are causing problems. So it, it's, it, it's really, uh, it's a, uh, I don't know if I can say this here, but, but it's a mind F. You know, it's it's like it, you, you don't even you know. Huh? <laughs> you can say it's a pile of shit if you want. <laughs> a pile of shit because they don't, don't even know they're in it, and they don't they 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 have no space to question. They're getting paid. This is their life, and their this is this is it. Yeah, and it's well, the community. And this is what I was talking about. I've been doing some TikToks recently about. Um, about how when you're considered to be the drama provider versus when you're actually calling something out that is a problem. And it's about whether or not you're violating the culture, right? Mm. And in the church, the culture says this is the belief. And so the only way to change the culture is to call out the predominant culture, which makes you a drama person, which makes you not a persona non grata, right? It's, it's, it's all of that. And this is where people are coming out with religious trauma because they're coming in and saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. They're calling out the culture and the culture is, is rejecting them. And the culture itself is claiming to be unconditionally loving and supportive, and therefore that creates trauma when the unconditionally loving and supportive culture rejects you, right? right? And so this, and, and this is where that revolving door is coming from, is that the culture itself is unwilling to shift, and it's defending itself, and it is its own worst enemy in this moment, because it won't step into the, the mythology of it as opposed to the factuality of it. And if you can shift that, then that becomes a very different animal, right? It does. It does. Yeah. It, you know, it, the foundations of that are, uh, you know, they're crumbling. I, I forget how many, I, uh, a, a couple of years ago, I knew the number, but, it, you know, like a hundred churches a day were closing at the time. And yeah, I've known several uh, ministers who have left their churches recently. Yes, In fact, right. um, Pastor G, who was on here doing the Seven Deadly Sins and Virtues series with us, was a pastor when we started and was no longer a pastor when we finished because he really? he, he let go of his his uh, um, uh, ordination because he right. just didn't agree with the belief structures of the, the organization that he was a part of. And so, you know, this is happening. I've, I'm, I'm seeing it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and it's, it, and it's a shame, right? Because there, there is a lot of good that churches have done and still do, but it's that controlling nature, the trauma that is caused by, you know, if you disagree or you question then you're, you're, you know, silently rejected and most, and most of them, I mean, there's, you know, there's some that publicly shame you and do that. Um, I don't know how powerful they are today, but people are out there. You're not going to stop searching. 
Because just like, you know, the myth behind the man, we've always searched for where, why are we here and what are we doing? What's the purpose? What's, what's my purpose? And the churches are crumbling enough where they might start opening their minds. At least that's my hope. Yeah, let's cross our <laughs> fingers because, yeah. you know, I've been in both, both of those scenarios in my life and, uh, and I've been, actively shunned and I have been passively shunned and I have been, you know, um, uh, demonized is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't, you're right. I didn't stop looking, but I finally found my answers outside of the church. Right. So, and that's despite having been through probably eight or 10 different denominations. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it's real, you know, and religious trauma is real. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of the hardest things for the Christian church to overcome is the previous religious trauma. And because for a lot of, in a lot of cases, they don't even acknowledge it. Right. And it's like the Catholic church 20 years ago was like, Oh no, we don't have any pedophiles in the, in the Catholic church. And now it's like, Oh yeah, we, we have a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, over time, Hopefully it, it evolves, right? Well, there is a new story, right? There is a, there is a, and it's not even a new story. It's sitting right in scripture, right in the gospels, but you have to come at it from a different angle to see it. And that's what I'm hoping this book opens their mind to do to say, hold on a minute. If this was a myth, Jesus was a myth, but Christ is real. How does that change what's printed in the Bible on those words? And of course, you've got to do some digging, but we want to help with that. Like we've done the digging. Jeff did the digging and you see the Greek words and you and you compare that to the culture and what was happening in the times. And you can see a very transformative message, but not one about saving you from hell. The eternal life is about full life, about abundance. And, you know, the church couldn't have people being abundant, especially as it got started, because you needed to make the church abundant. Right. Well, and, and, you know, there's the other piece of it's easier to keep people in line if they have a common belief structure that says sacrifice for today so that you'll be rewarded in the afterlife. And it's just there, it, there were a lot of political things that that really uh, went hand in hand. There's a reason that kings and churches, kings and popes were friends, right? right. <laughs> you know, um, you know, these things were, were relevant. And, and so the, the thing that the other piece of the puzzle here is that it, the story keeps getting changed and it gets changed through things like the council of Nicaea, where they removed a whole bunch of the books and in, in 1000 and through constant re translation. There's a fantastic TikTok from a guy who is a scholar in the original, uh, what what was it? I want to say, was it Sumerian? It might have been, or it might have been a scene, I don't know, Hebrew, may have been ancient Hebrew. I think maybe he's an ancient Hebrew. I'll, I'll post it on the show notes here. But there is a TikTok where he translates direct from the original text of the Lord's prayer to English. Mm. And it is an entirely different thing. And so every time it gets translated, the words that are chosen, the framing, the belief structure of the person who's doing the translating, all of it gets built into this new model, which we then treat as sacrosanct and never was because it doesn't actually come from the original. So even Mm -hmm. if you think the original is the word of God, it's not the original because it's been translated and bastardized multiple times. And, you know, well, just the word um, virgin, for example, as we're coming up, well, we're, we're around the Christmas, you know, the holiday season and people are thinking about Christmas or just having had Christmas when, whenever this goes out to, to the public. But um, in the original, um, it's and it's quite it's acknowledged actually in the footnotes of many modern Bibles um, the the word virgin meant young lady or young woman. So a young woman will have a child and his name shall be called Jesus, for example. Um, but that didn't fit the 
ironically, that didn't fit the need for the myth. So there's there's multiple um, elements going on here. Um, it's pretty obvious for anybody who's spent any time studying the New Testament that most of the so-called historical chronology and narrative of the New Testament is built around the need to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. So there was, there's no question that there's a retrospective looking back at, okay, so who is this Messiah guy going to be? Oh, he's going to have this. He's going to, you know, the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. Um, he's going to you know, be the savior. He's, he's going to enable people to turn their swords into plowshares and so on. So constantly, constantly, constantly. And I used to teach religious education. So trust me, um, you know, this was several lessons that I used to teach that, you know, look, the, the New Testament must be true. Why? Because, oh, by chance, by some, you know, amazing divine thing, look, it fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies. Yeah. Uh, and anything that fulfills a prophecy must be true, and it's got to be divine, and it's got to be inspired by God. Um, well, ignore and the then, circular logic entirely. <laughs> yeah. What I didn't teach and what I regret, and if I, you know, they wouldn't probably let me back in now, but... Um, <laughs> If I were to go back, I would say, you know what? There was these guys called the Egyptians. And these Egyptian guys had gods born of virgins, for example. And these Egyptians guys had gods who died and were reborn again. Uh, yeah, have you heard that before? You know, and there are the, there's even one particular story of a god who was, uh, you know, died on a tree. For example, and so on, and and the Romans had similar things, and the Greeks, and um, and the Buddhists, and um, and so on and so on, all over the world. So what the, what this book that you know the the true origins of Jesus tries to do is to say, you can't even really begin to think, well, you know, what is true here? What is you know what is fact? Until you've got all the evidence in front of you, and one of the things that stands out by a country mile is the fact that there is no historical um, evidence whatsoever um, to support the existence of a, of a physical Jesus. Now, one of, one of the hundred years ago, for those who know a bit about recent Christian history, it was really popular to think, well, you know what? We accept that the New Testament it doesn't add up and things contradict themselves. So what are we really talking about here? So what they say is, well, there actually was a, a guy, a, a real guy, and this is sort of the God spell. Anybody remembers that music or Jesus Christ? But there was a guy, and he was a, like a really superhero guy, and he, you know, he he didn't do any wrong anything wrong to anybody, and he had these amazing. He spouted this amazing wisdom, and he talked about you know, blessed are the peacemakers, and and you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and all that sort of stuff. And he was a real guy. It's just that the people who wrote it down got it wrong. You know, they got it, they kind of misrepresented him. So there was a real person who was misrepresented. Now, that was a whole form of Christianity. Um, I'm trying, uh, I'm trying well, to think when of you give when you assume that it, it's a, it's a, it was a verbal tradition for three or four hundred years before it ever got written down in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, if you've ever heard somebody tell a story that they heard twenty years ago, exactly. and you, you know, you got to know that that's going to morph and change, and you know, be be it's a it's a virtual thing of telephone for three hundred years, four hundred years. Nobody. Yeah, we fixed that with this. With this, it's the it's in the Word of God. So it's there, and, and and God doesn't make mistakes. So it's that, that's how they fix it. But it, the really weird thing is that it's that's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't call itself a word of God in any of the letters, right, or, right. or any of the books. Nowhere. Yeah. You know, the closest thing is Scripture, right? The word Scripture. So, but you that that Bible is ha- held as sacrosanct, right. and and it's where whenever I said. Well, since that's the foundation, how did this get made? What happened here? And that's when I first started finding out, you know, about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Council of Nicaea, how these letters were never meant, you know, most of Paul's letters were never meant for public conception. Right. All that. And it's, but this is the, this is the Bible. And it just so happens the way that we interpret it is the right way. You know, the 5,000 different religions around it. 
Yeah, well, well and, and, and that's the thing, too, is that you've got all these religions that all interpreted differently, but it's all right. Mm-hmm. And you've got all of these different translations, but they're all the word of God, but they all mean different things. And so it's like, well, okay. And as a shaman, I love this. Because mm-hmm. as a shaman, I'm like, yes, all experience is good experience because we, we learn and we gain something from it. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the coyote shaman in me loves the, 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 uh, aspects of, of both positive and negative, the, the, you know, the, the transcendence of being connected to the Christ consciousness and the debasement of the religious trauma, which causes us to see our pain and, cr- and grow as people, right? So to a certain extent, I can see the wisdom in saying it is all the word of God because it all provides a different experience, right? But to the person who doesn't have that perspective, it becomes problematic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it becomes problematic on both sides too because there's yeah. so much... Anger about this. There's yeah. the public discourse is is one side or the other. It's almost it's well, it's like politics. And yeah. instead of hold it, what is what are we all really searching for? What is every human being here for? And searching for that is where things start to open up. And you can do that from a place on a pew in a Christian church or a Buddhist church or a shaman ritual or you, you, it, it could be anywhere but that's what everyone's gonna do at some point i don't know when but you know i know <laughs> when my win was so kelly you you know i'm studying carl young in some some depth professor yes. carl gustav young who was a mate of sigmund freud even though they had a big fallout and one of the things they fell out about was religion right um for those of you who, who who don't know, but Freud was an atheist. He was a Jew, Jewish background. He was an atheist. He said that um, it's just a way of control. You know, religion is a way of controlling the human psyche, um, and it's mismanaged and it's misused, and it's just a way of um, the psyche's way of answering a problem that it can't answer, which is you know who is God and why are we here, sort of thing. Uh, Carl Jung said, "Well, I beg to disagree." He said, I actually think Christianity has got some use. And Freud said, well, how can it have any use? You know, and he said, well, it has a use in that if it really is a myth, then it's got real purpose. If we prepared to, to move away from it needing to be factual, and there never was a guy called Jesus, and that he, he originated out of other myths, so he's a mythological figure that was borrowed from previous myths, then that, what does that tell us about the human psyche? What does it tell us about mythology? So uh, you probably covered this already, but I just did a quick, quick summary. Carl Jung said that mythology, the human need to create story and legend, is the psyche's way of making some sense out of this chaos called the unconscious. So, you know, when we dream, when we have weird, you know, weird dreams about God, when we're, we're trying to understand the universe and how it all works, and it's all sort of a bit of a chaos, it's all a bit of a mess. And one of the things that saves us from complete despair in that is story. And over the, over a period of eons, a millennia of human existence, starting with when we needed to grow vegetables so we could eat, and the understanding that, you know, in winter things die and then in spring they come back to life again, all of this turned into mythology, into story, which eventually turned into religion. And if you look at all of the world's major religions, they all contain the same, um, basic elements, which Carl Jung called archetypes. In other words, the need for the hero, the need to understand rebirth, the need to understand the purpose of death, the need to, under, uh, to understand uh, the essence of life in everything, the spirit of life, what makes things be alive, all of that stuff. He said that all comes from deep within the uh, individual unconscious, but not just within our own individual unconscious or subconscious. It comes from a collective unconscious, and that's where Freud said, You've gone crazy. You're a religious maniac. I don't want anything more to do with you. You know, see you later, sort of thing. And Carl Jung said, yeah, but I think I've got the answer here. And the answer is this, that mythology 
And this manufacturing of story to enable us to understand what's going on in our own psyche and what's going on in the universe is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. This is the way we discover the most important thing, which is what he called the self. In other words, he said, I spend my entire life trying to enable my conscious to, to rediscover my unconscious self. And if I can work on that so that the two things eventually come collide and come together, then, uh, then I've discovered what he called the self. And he said, and I've got something else to tell you, that the two strongest elements of human nature that meet at that point are the archetype of the child, the divine child, that sense that we're special, that we're loved, that we, that we, you know, that we have been brought into this world and we are cherished. He called that the archetype of the divine child. And the other is the existence of the need for, for a God image. And those two things are what drive all the myths that are the basis of religion. But he also said, if you can find in the myth that you live or the religion that you believe in, if you can find that transformative power of the self, that meeting of the conscious and the unconscious, complete opposites, it seems, but if you can bring them together, then you have found the divine within. And in the end of the day, he said, from my money, he said, you don't have to believe me, this is just what I believe. He said, but I believe that that's the meaning of the whole purpose of religion and mythology in the first place. The psyche, the psyche's on a journey, and the psyche's on a permanent journey to try and find that sweet spot. And as a shaman, I would argue that no mythology is ever actually truly made up, that we are, in fact, channeling some greater truth that we know on a higher level that we are trying to express through symbology, because symbology itself is a far more mm -hmm. complex and rich language than any language on the planet. Sure. And it, it encompasses so much and yet is still so limited compared to what is true on a universal scale. And so in, in any given mythology that we're expressing, we are in fact channeling through the world of symbology a greater truth that is unspeakable, unknowable within the limited confines of our human brains. And so, you know, we have this uh, so, so, you know, let's take what we've been talking about and talk about how do we move it forward, right? How do we, if we assume that Jesus is a myth and that the Christ consciousness is what everyone actually wants and is, is ascribing all of these ahas to, and that Jesus, the myth, the man, whether he existed or not, is embodying the Christ consciousness along the way, right? How do we then tap into said Christ consciousness in order to have that transcendent transformational experience that we are all seeking as part of our working towards our personal purpose in the world, right? And because obviously, if we're going to walk down this path, that's really what the goal of, of embracing this new ideology would be. So I'm going to throw this one back to Dean. Well, I was really getting ready to say, well, you answer that for me. I'll tell you something that's coming at me right now. And, you know, at the, you know, I, I often say I, I, I play at the intersection of spirituality, science and entrepreneurship. So mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship, this idea of high performance, human high performance. And what we're finding out today is to me, it's showing some truths about that the power of that Christ consciousness, that mythical power, that the the capabilities of human beings once they align and integrate the the belief system, the conscious and subconscious, and can visualize and start creating. It's a it's and so a, to define it for you, the Christ consciousness is what. To, because people, I can hear people asking that question. They're like, what is it, the Christ consciousness? What does it mean? I would say it is the power that this universe was created by embodied inside of human beings. Okay. And would that be coming from a place of unconditional love in your lexicon? 
We're becoming from a place. Well, I believe that power is seated in love, right? So, okay. So yes. Okay. I just wanted to confirm that because, you know, there's, there's, there, there are people who believe in, you know, unconditional love is the foundation of the universe and others who are like undifferentiated chi, you know, and it's, you know, so, so just to define what we're talking about, right? Um, I think the Christ consciousness is pretty universally established as foundation in unconditional love in my experience of researching it. Do you have any other argument on that one? I don't. I don't. Okay. All right. How about, how about Colin? I would like to hear your answer on that because the way you describe that force in the universe is unconditional love. Yeah. Um, I'm obsessed with unconditional love. Um, as an alchemist, I don't know any greater power than unconditional love. The, the breakthrough for me was um, being ident- able to identify unconditional love as an, as an essence in and of itself. In other words, unconditional love is not dependent on anything else, but it is the beginning and it is the end. It's the, so in, in terms of um, Christ consciousness, it, unconditional love is the alpha and the omega of, of being, period. And that's where we come from and that's where we go back to. And you talk to anybody, the thousands or hundreds of thousands of people have had a near-death experience. You ask them to name one thing. Mm-hmm. And they all say the same thing. What was your the predominant thing coming back into this world that you brought back with you? And they will all say unconditional love. I experienced a, being loved beyond anything I've ever. My problem was when I was eighteen years of age, I actually encountered that unconditional love in a spiritual Kundalini type moment in a in a evangelical church. <laughs> So I had an experience that I couldn't make any sense of in the context in which I'd had that experience. And I spent many wasted years. Well, not, they weren't wasted years. I've, I've got some dear, dear friends from that time. But the point was that the the Christology that, that I was then trying to conform into didn't match this experience, which I still hold, have today. So I'm able to reproduce that same moment of unconditional so when i when i um when i meditate when i go seeking for the self within the the place i find is that that kundalini moment if you like those of you who who know kundalini yoga is is where but all all that i can experience and all i can know in, in in totality is that i am loved unconditionally i am surrounded and immersed in love and and i uh, my heart goes out to anybody out there listening right now who has never known that, has never felt that. Uh, my my message in my book, The Secret of the Alchemist, is that you can know it. You, mm. you, you, it might take a while. There may be some things. You know, talk to Kelly. She'll help you. She'll help you through the things, the hurdles, and a lot of the blocks that are going to get in the way. But that's our birthright. That's that's one thing of all the things that we have a right to in this existence on earth is to know that the power of that love. And if we don't know that the power of that love, then we are, we're missing understanding. Now, if you can find the power of that love in a Bible believing church, go for it. Absolutely. No, no, not mocking anything. If you can find it in Buddhism, go for it. If you can find it in shamanism, go for it. If you can find it in the mystery religions and so on and so on, it doesn't actually matter which myth or which religion or which process that you put your faith in to find that love. The, the key is you won't know who you truly are until you know that love in, in your life. And so when I used to preach Jesus, <laughs> you need to be born again, I thought that's I was preaching you need to know unconditional love. What I then soon discovered was that wasn't what most of the people I was standing up with uh, were saying, they were saying something completely different. It was a big shock to me when I realized that yeah, we were on a different different page. So I actually excommunicated myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, how would you I, answer I that question? I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm really not yeah, doing you guys yeah, any good I, whatsoever. I should, I should leave now before I do any more damage. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, I, too, had a... a, a um, experience of unconditional love uh, actually at a uh, Southern Baptist uh, uh, 
summer camp. And, you know, it was, will you accept Christ as your savior? And I had that Christ moment of stepping into Mm -hmm. that experience of unconditional love. And I walked up and accepted Christ as my savior. And, you know, it, it lasted for a little bit. Um, but then I had the same experience you did, which is, you know, it wasn't the same thing that other people were saying. And so I, I wandered off from there eventually. But, um, for me, if I talk about, and and I'm going to talk very personally about this because everybody has their own path and each person's path is going to be unique to them. So I'm just going to talk about my pathway to walking as closely in Christ consciousness as is as I am capable of in any given moment. Um, and for me, it has been uh, truly just learning to understand and accept people for who they are, uh, because then I'm not in judgment because the more you're not in judgment, the, the closer to Christ consciousness you are, the closer to unconditional love you are is to get out of judgment. Right. Uh, and for me, it has also been about learning to love myself because if you can't love yourself, you can't love anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you can care about them. You can obsess about them. You can be codependent with them, but you cannot love them unless you learn how to love yourself. And finally, the last piece has been to accept, and this is the right word, accept that I am ultimately and incredibly powerful and not from an ego place, Mm-mm. but from simply a place of acknowledging what is true and seeing what I have wrought in the world, right? As, as, you know, step back and see what you have wrought and to, to truly acknowledge without hubris, but without false humility, what is true. Mm. And I keep telling people, but they're like, Oh, well, you know, that's awfully arrogant. And I'm like, no, no, arrogance by definition is puffing. Arrogance is claiming something that is not true. If it is true, it is by definition, not arrogance. Hmm. And so look it up in the, in the dictionary. My husband and I had this argument. And so, um, and so it's simply a matter. And, and the older I get and the, the more adept I become at this, the less energy is attached to this knowingness. It is simply a knowing at the core of my being that this is true, much like I know that I can get up and walk across the room. In fact, I know this more than I know that I can walk across the room because I'm getting old and sometimes my knees don't like me. (laughs) But, but that's, that's the thing. But so much of the work I've done has been unwinding my belief that it's not true. And unwinding my my belief that quote unquote reality has control over me, mm. right? Yeah. That's so beautiful. you asked my my yeah, my answer very much. It's beautiful because it is you know that the love of self, which is so anti Christian. Yeah. But it's so essential to stop judging when you when you fall in love unconditionally with who you are you are falling in love with unconditional love. Yes. And there is no space for the judgment because, I mean, there's no use for it. It doesn't do any any good. But when you're in a place of right or wrong, which religion puts you there, if you're in it, one has to be right, one has to be wrong. And it's that foundational core heart and mind level that it goes goes astray. But it's amazing What's amazing is the story, you know, both you and Calm have that in a, in a church setting. And, and like me, you went and said, where is this? Oh, it's just, okay. I get it. You don't believe that, but it's got to be here because I felt it. I know it. I experienced it. It's real. You can't talk. It, it doesn't matter if you say it was. And it's, it's those moments of unconditional love. Mine happened in a car. You know, it's just so happens. And it's like, Okay, I know it's weird, but it happened. Right. Well, and you bring something up, which is duality. When you are engaged in duality thinking, good, bad, you know, um, good and evil, Mm -hmm. right and wrong, right? All of these things. When you are engaged in duality thinking, you are in judgment. Yes. And judgment is, by definition, the separation of self from unconditional love. And Mm -hmm. so... When you are 
in duality thinking and, and not in existential thinking. So existential thinking is this is an experience that I can learn from. And the experience may be a pleasant one. It may not be a pleasant one. I, I can enjoy it or not, right? I, I can engage it or not, right? I can be present for it or not. I can, you know, leave my body if I choose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's an experience. And I'm not, if I don't judge it as a good or bad experience, but I just say, okay, this is what happened. What does it mean? Right? That's a different thing than saying this is a good or bad experience. Like I had a migraine forming earlier today as I was having a conversation with another shaman. And I was like, I'm, I'm very interested because I'm very excited to talk to you, but somehow I have a migraine forming. I'm wondering what that means because there's something here because when I got on this call with you guys, my migraine went away. Right. So it was something about that call, that conversation with that person that was causing the migraine. And it's probably an internal block in, within me that I'm going, okay, there's something I've got to get out of the way of in order for this to, to work because I want to work with this person and we're going to figure this out and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm too attached. Maybe I'm too stressed. Maybe there's something I need to let go of. I will be sitting with that later. Right. But I could have just gone, ah, oh, crap, I've got a migraine. This sucks. Right. (laughs) But I lose the gift of it then. Right. And so, you know, when you can stay in the experience instead of the judgment of it, then you stay in connection with that unconditional love and with with the with the energy of the universe, which then brings you your wisdom. Mm. Right. Okay. And I think I think that'll call it good for the day. What do we think? Anybody have anything else you absolutely have to get out the door or? Oh, I think I think we've nailed it. Actually, uh, I will just say that that Jeff Roberts' book, um, "The Charges of Jesus," um, he doesn't explore a lot of what we just said. By the way, just FYI, I don't want to misrepresent the book. What the book does is lay the factual historical foundations for the origins of what we've just been talking about. In other words, we didn't make this up. Christianity didn't make it up. This is part of human existence, and it's been around and had multiple expressions over many, many centuries. And um, if you want to know how that grew and how it evolved and how it developed, then then the book really does do that in a really easy, progressive way. And uh, I can't recommend it too much uh, to the point that I put my money on it, and we've, re- we've republished it. So <laughs> it must be it must be good. There we go. And the, the link for that book is in the show notes today. Uh, and you can find it on Amazon. It is called The True Origins of Jesus, The Myth Behind the Man. And by Jeff Roberts, spelled G-E-O-F-F, Roberts, like the Dread Pirate. And uh, <laughs> you can find it on Amazon or you can uh, click through on the link in the show notes. And... So thank you guys for coming. This was a great conversation. We're super excited to have had you in column as always. I love you. So great to have met you, Dean. Kelly, thank you so much. It was, it was a joy. Yeah. And, and we'll include a link to your, your work as well as columns work on the show notes as well so that everybody can find you guys and learn more about you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thanks. Well, guys, that is all the time that we have for this week. Uh, Kelly, do you have a Kellyism? Oh, I think today? I delivered that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Yes. All right. Well, y'all tune in next time when Kelly adds another chapter into your guide to energy, magic, and the spirit world. I'm Jules here with Kelly Sparta and Colin Holland and Dean Wilkinson. And you have been listening to Spirit Sherpa. So long, everyone. Bye. Driving down the road, eyes on the horizon Within my car, I'm all alone But feeling good and feeling strong Knowing that this path I'm on brings me to myself I'm driving Are you waking up to the spiritual world and realizing that you have no idea what you're doing, but you feel like you kind of probably should, especially since 
you seem to be seeing things and feeling things and having things see you that maybe aren't so great and that you might want to actually control your experience of that. Well, I have great news for you because our Welcome to the Woo program does just that for you. It teaches you how to hold your energy field, manage your energy field, clear your energy field, protect your energy field, and learn how to protect your space. And you learn how to do basic divination and talk to your guides so that you feel like you actually have a clue and have a way to talk to the guides that will help you to figure everything else out. And it teaches you how to make sure that you feel mentally, emotionally, and energetically safe. That means that we also deal with things like fear and anxiety and worry and dread and self-doubt and inner and outer judgments. And we help you build a foundation of self-support and courage. All of these things together create a solid sense of safety in your own life. They will reduce your stress levels in half, guaranteed. So visit the website at kellysparta.com and find out more about the Welcome to the Woo program. Your future awaits.